I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Good. Glad to hear it. Well, I've been thinking a lot about the various programming languages that are available to us. Mm -hmm. So many. There are so many, and sometimes I stare at the Compiler Explorer drop-down of languages that the Compiler Explorer supports, and I don't even recognize a third of them because people mm-hmm. add them in, and apparently these uh, there are languages like, um, I forgot now, there's, uh, there's things beginning with Z that I've never heard of before, Zig, that's the one I'm thinking of, Zig and other things, and there's just there are so many out there, and it made me think, why do we have so many programming languages, and why do we, why do what causes people to choose a particular programming language over another? In the future, everyone will have their own programming language. Made it just feels for that them. way. Yes. It feels that way. It feels like, you know, yeah, and in the world of, you know, domain-specific languages, of some of which are subsets of other languages, mm-hmm. you know, we have got a little taste of the everyone's got their own language. Mm-hmm. But why is that? I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I was uh, – there was a period of time in my career – I've stopped doing this recently, but there was a period of time where I would try to learn a new programming language every year. Um, And I would always look for things that kind of would stretch the way that I think about problems. Um, You know, you can only use so many, you know, C derivative programming languages uh, before you start, you know, recognizing the same patterns over and over again, it gets boring. Well, I guess I mean that's that's a, so that's a, like point one is the yeah. programming languages differ more in just syntax. It's not just like hey, this thing uses squiggly brackets, this one doesn't. This mm-hmm. uses white space. There are some actual real deep, deep differences in the way you think about programming and how that maps to the primitives that those languages make it make it easy for you to do. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah, I mean languages like Lisp. And then all the Lisp derivatives are, are sort of a very different way of thinking about programming. Although you can model a lot of those same ideas in other languages that are not even close to Lisp. Um, and, you know, that was one of the reasons that I started doing that is because I would find that I would uh, be forced to use ideas if I wanted to, you know, be in Rome and do what the Romans do when learning a new language. Right. And then I could take those ideas back to the languages that I was using in my day job. Uh, in some form or fashion, most of the time, and I, I feel like that maybe trailed off a little bit the more languages I learned. But um, the more certainly when I was doing it in the early days, it was it was very um, inspiring. Right in the, in that way that learning uh, a foreign spoken language or written language yeah. opens your mind to a different culture and the ideas that go with it. And there will be the, some of those words that you know obviously everyone's got a word for dog and cat and things like that. But there may be some subtle things in a spoken language which you can't convey that, that, that don't translate you have to think about things in a different way yeah and you get the same in programming languages too as you said like lisp um i remember like one of the first things i did uh, when i moved into the world of trading was pair with uh somebody who was writing a time of closure and it was like a massive brain explosion for me because i'm like i'm such an imperative you know one mm-hmm. instruction after another literally kind of a person and then mm-hmm. to see it done in uh, a lisp 
like language was was mind blowing for me. And at first, I disliked it greatly. It's like what well, it would be much easier to do it if we were to just you know write a normal program like yeah, normal right. people do. But then I realized no, there's a lot to learn from this. And and as I've as I've developed as a programmer, I've realized that some of the more core ideas like immutability and things like that have come from languages like Lisp. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously they're not unique to Lisp, but that way of thinking of like very very functional. Um, mutability that that lack of mutability um yeah, pure yeah. functions and things like that now i use a lot in in my day job as a c programmer right mm-hmm. i had that same experience doing a project in haskell uh which the project itself did not go great but um just being forced to use that language to do something and this was actually at my actual real job and your real job, right? Uh, yeah. Not just a toy project. No, this was this was for real. Um, and so being f- sort of thrown into that environment and forced to learn it was good. It it sort of made me think about uh, a lot of different ideas I hadn't been exposed to before. So, um, yeah, yeah. And that's without even going in. I mean, so so far we've said Haskell and Lisps, which definitely are very different from like your C C family or um, mm-hmm. can't even see what was the progenitor of C uh, beginning with A. Oh, can't think now, but you know, like the that that suite of families that came together, um, that are very imperative, and you know, you can pretty much read the code line by line and go, "This is what's going to happen." Mm-hmm. And then you've got lists which are still have that flavor to them, but then there are other languages which are very much like, and maybe if Haskell falls into this, I'm not not as sure about it. But you know, like there's a lot of pattern matching in Haskell, I'm aware of. Yeah, and you know, yeah. like if you think of things like Prolog, even which is in a completely different way of you know, make a make file is essentially a programming language of a sort, mm-hmm. which makes you think about things the other way around. You're like, how do I achieve this? I don't know. I have rules that match, and the rules get me to my destination. And as long as there's a path from what I want and all the all the transformations that can be applied, then a solution is found and my program runs. Or that's a very different way of thinking about it than literally writing the code to do it yourself. You know, so. But you know, when one sits down and you know we're about to, one's going to start a, a new project, it seems like. I mean, you said it yourself. Like the way that you've learned these languages or other languages, as, like myself, actually, is you know you spend a bit of time once a year or every other year or something, and you go like, "Hey, this is the hot new programming language. Why shouldn't I try this out?" And you try it and you learn. And that's great. And sometimes maybe you can then use that in your day job. But when you're sitting down to say like write a little program at work, how do you make a choice about which language to pick? What are the criteria? You know, what what do you think of when you're sitting down to write something? Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, that can be a hugely impactful decision for any company. Uh, getting that wrong can be can be very very painful. Um, the main thing that I think about is the community behind the language, and there isn't always a a true sort of singular community. Some you know languages have tighter knit communities, and some of them have much broader committees uh that govern them yep. and 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 you know it's sort of you can run the gamut just like you can with with language teachers and other things of like what did what are, who are the people about the behind this language um but i think that one of the most important things to look at beyond syntax beyond standard libraries mm-hmm. um beyond even the user library community behind it is um the the community behind the, the language itself and who's sort of driving it forward because whatever they value you will be forced to value right uh, if they value uh strict algebraic types you will be forced to value strict algebraic types if they value testing you will be forced to value testing and so on and so on and so on this and is so- like when you pick a framework 
you know, if you find yourself not fitting in with the thought processes of that framework, you find you're going to be swimming upstream the whole time. Mm-hmm. Even more so with a language, it's like, well, I want to do, you know, I've picked a, a language which is uh, functional, and I'm trying to do imperative style programming. You know, you're not right. going to get very far, right. right? You've made your life harder for for no good reason. So, yep, yep. And 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 as the languages as the language evolves, and some languages evolve faster than others, but as la- the language evolves it will tend to evolve in a direction that meets the values of that community, right? So, you know, you, you can sort of look to the future a little bit to see, like, okay, what are the new features of this language going to be? Well, let me go see, you know, who are the people that are very active in this? What do they value? Right. You know, look at the conferences, look at the talks, look at the papers that are written, um, and try to figure out, like, you know, what what is important to them, right? Not necessarily what's in the language today, but like what do they think is what important? What are the what values they, yeah. of, the, of the driving? So that you're taking a very long-term view there, which is commendable, right? right? Especially yeah. as I gave you the question of like, hey, if you're sitting down at work, right, exactly. what should you be doing? Yes, right? So that's, yes. that's obviously couched in that kind of um, right. uh, the background. That shouldn't necessarily apply if you're writing your own, project if you're just going to right. sit down and write like bang out a command line tool right mm-hmm. i mean this is a yeah. perfect example of something that you would then use to learn a language like every year or so as you as you say and of course mm-hmm. that takes time and spare time and every, not everyone has the time to to, to spend le- learning a, other, a whole other language so we should definitely um note that but it is a fun thing to do but then do you have an instinct as to what like, what would be the next language you learn? I've got my answer. Uh, what would be the next language you would sit down and write something out in if you were to start from scratch, apropos of nothing for yourself? Um, assuming, so, I, I would, for, for those kinds of projects, I would definitely lean more toward, like, what are the libraries available to me and what can I get done right. quickly? If I'm right. learning a language just to learn something new, I would actually go back to a language that I had already tried to learn and sort of used a decent amount already, which is Rust. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Rust has come along a bit since I've used it last, and I think that it is a very interesting language, and I would want to use it again. Um, I don't have a project in mind that Rust would be a good fit for right now. There was a period of time where I was following a guy on Twitter that was really heavily involved in um, embedded Rust. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I want to say his name was Julian something, but I don't. I don't remember. But anyway, it was. That was I was kind of like trying to figure out like you know could I use Rust um, for embedded programming because you know as we talked about with uh, James in one of our very very early episodes sometimes uh, testing for embedded systems can be kind of tricky and I wondered if the mm-hmm. type system in Rust would help um, remove oh. the need for some of the testing that I would be normally inclined to do and just re- sort of rely on the compiler and the type system to sort of solve those problems right. for me. That's definitely so. Yeah, the, I would also pick Rust as like the next language I would sit down and learn. And I've again, I've touched it probably six, seven years ago last, um, and I'd be interested to see how it goes. But for for different reasons, because I want a language which is performant, but also has all the things you just talked about. You know, static typing, very strong typing, and I think that's that is also another sort of axis that one can slice yes, um, languages down. We talked about you know like Lisp and Haskell and and Prolog and C like languages. Um, they're all various different shapes of different parts of the of, of, of on the on the multi-dimensional space of languages. But mm-hmm. some of the big axes are compiled versus interpreted, yep. which we haven't yet talked about. Um, statically typed versus dynamically typed, which mm-hmm. sometimes goes hand in hand with that compiled versus interpreted. Um, and you know, then how how statically typed you are, right? You know, in terms of can you have full algebraic data types and things like that, and 
um, it is definitely like my, I spend most of my time these days writing C++ and um, it's not as strongly typed as say Rust in terms of the things that Rust is tracking in its type system, which is why I'm interested in seeing, you know, hey, what would be, what would C++ look like if I could encode this information and the compiler can check it for me so that I just know it's correct by construction, right? If these mm-hmm. things, um, if it compiles, then I haven't got any memory errors. That's really exciting to me. But then I spend as most of my non-work time writing in JavaScript or Python, right? both of which are very, very much on the other end of things. And it's a really interesting trade-off because there's no question. If you're going to write a little tool that's just, you know, uh, um, you know, little shell script replacement tool, mm-hmm. I'm going to reach for Python every time because I can just get stuff done really, really quickly with it. And I don't need the rigor of the type systems. But, um, and in fact, that would I, that's probably not... Um, uh, it wouldn't matter if it broke anyway. I would get there and I'd be like, that's fine. That's okay. I have to rename a couple of files at the end of whatever I was trying, right, trying to right. achieve. Yeah. And so there's definitely that sort of axis as well where, you know, like banging something out quickly. And I hear good things about Go in that respect because Go Go has another mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. so third, fourth axis. However many axes we're talking about now mm-hmm. is how easy is it to deploy the result of what you've done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a that's I think Go brought that to the foreground for me yep. when you start to see all the HashiCorp to- toy uh, toys they're not toys <laughs> tools coming out <laughs> exactly <laughs> some people toys. think they're toys but yeah <laughs> I, yeah all the HashiCorp stuff and it was all written in Go and you and like yeah. you got used to the idea of you download a binary and you ch mod it and you yeah, run it and that yeah, is the yeah. application it's like whoa my mm-hmm. mind's been blown where's the installer oh there's no installer it's just it? a four meg binary just a binary yeah yeah whoa yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Go is a language that I actually intentionally wouldn't put on a list of things to go and like learn on my own because I'm expecting any day now <laughs> that you're going to need <laughs> that, it. That I'm just going to need it in my day job, and I'm like, Got oh, it. okay, I'll learn it then, right? Like it's, yeah. it's and you know, you'll, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll learn that on you know the company's dime <laughs> right, as opposed right. to your own personal dime. And I mean, you know, maybe I should warm up that cash a little bit, but I, Go doesn't also strike me as a language that's particularly difficult to learn. One person. Um, that I know that has written a fair amount of Go uh, told me once that the way that you increase your productivity in Go is you type faster. There's no, there's not a lot right. of like magic and that's tricks. That's the keyboard and, t- level of typing, yes. not the, the type oh, yes, system right. typing. Type, yeah, <laughs> not, not type system faster. Um, and yeah. nor do you type the literal word faster. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> just resolving ambiguities here. Right. Um, but yeah, it doesn't strike me as a language that's that's particularly difficult to learn. I think any language, you know, it's it's there's always going to be a learning curve with the standard library and the and the yeah. library community and stuff like that. Um, some like languages, you said also the ethos behind it and the way that it's right. driven like might not be against your you know your personal flow. Like slices, I know are a big thing and go and I always stare mm-hmm. at them and go, what? Uh, uh, yeah, right, fine. Yeah. There's there's definitely that thing and you, once you once that penny drops, you can usually make a lot of progress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. You were saying something far more interesting. Oh, um, I just yeah, just that um, it it. It doesn't seem like the the learning curve with Go is mostly in the language. I would expect it to be mostly in the libraries, and that's the kind of thing that's going to be uh, domain specific anyway, right? Like it's right. it's not like I'm going to go and survey the entire world of Go libraries and predict which one I'm going to need at my job to be able to do X and Y and Z that I don't even know what it is yet, right? Whereas another language like you know Haskell would fall in this category, Rust would fall in this category. The language itself and the environment itself has a lot of complexity to it. And independent of any particular problem that you would want to solve with it, from, you know, a 
half mile away sort of staring at it, I think, you know, there might be a lot of complexity there that just is just to get the hello world, you know, or to do any, yeah. any sort of non-trivial problem, no matter what it is. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, again, things like Haskell, I know, you know, there's, you know, things that involve monads and things that nobody can explain or understand. And <laughs> it's I like a burrito. And things. It's like, oh, don't start. <laughs> <laughs> Except a burrito you can't explain to anyone else without invoking other words. An endofunctor in the category of monoids or something is what the, the definition of it is like. That's thank you. Now I, there's three more words I need to go and look up. But yeah, so some of those things do definitely fundamentally change the way you think about stuff. And so um, talking of something, and maybe this isn't a Haskell thing particularly, but in some of the other languages we've talked about, the idea of currying functions and partially applying functions and passing functions as first class things, that's a that to me is like that that functional thing that really changes the way you think about problem solving mm-hmm. um, because you're like, hey, I can do that, that I can compose these apparently arbitrary distinct um, things and put them together in a way that makes some new thing without ha- either of them having to change. You know, it's like all that solid open close stuff. You know, when when a function is itself is something you can manipulate right. and apply things to and make a new function in the language itself. That's a powerful construct, but it does require a lot of thinking, especially for a mm-hmm. an old assembly programmer like me. I'm not right. used to that kind of kind of ability to change things. But yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, the crazy thing about that, and I think a reason why it's cool to learn these languages is like you knew that in JavaScript too, right? Yeah. So like you know, it, it talk about something you use for your day job. It's like you know, you start thinking of designing programs that way because you have to and then you start seeing places where you can and then it's a question of whether you should but (laughs) (laughs) right but at least you know that you can right Uh, right yeah yeah so these things are applicable sometimes but i I don't think out of the gate i would have ever considered writing i mean i guess newer javascript makes lambdas easier to write but you know writing currying and composing other functions seems a little bit harder i mean although i think i've done some fairly disgusting things with eval and strings Mm -hmm. along the way i think we all have crimes crimes against the uh the interpreter <laughs> yeah 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 why well, a question that i would love to get your take on this is that there's obviously a whole bunch of different forces that feed into language popularity what do you think it is right. that makes languages popular yeah that's that that's a really difficult question um i mean solving a need and so actually, I was listening to another podcast the other day, uh, the ADSP podcast, which is Algorithms Plus Data Structures Equals Programs. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll try and remember to put a link somewhere in our uh, our uh, uh, transcripts. But um, in that, they were talking about this and saying, there seems to be like sweet spots where certain languages that had very specific domains have been very popular in that domain. And by catering to a particular domain, mm-hmm. they've become successful and, and have had a longevity. And so they were talking about things like Erlang, which you know is another oh, yeah. whole different way. You know, it's it's huge in the telecoms industry because it solves a very real need that they have for certain fault tolerance. Um, and then one of the things that's brought up is what about Python? You know, the data science community has basically adopted Python as the as as the. Um, and we're going to get hate mail from people who want us to talk about R, but you know, <laughs> Python is the de facto. Yeah. In my mind, uh, so- solution. But the thing is, Python is a general purpose language. It just happens to have a couple of really popular libraries, NumPy and Pandas, that do a whole bunch of useful things. And it's almost like a sub-community that have yeah. grabbed yeah. onto that more so than people using it more generally. Yeah. Um, I don't think Guido had scientific computing in mind when he made the language. No, sure. that's a kind of accident of, mm-hmm. of how it turned out. Yeah. And then, you know, things like C, I think 
a very they were they they found a sweet spot above assembly code and below anything too complicated so that you know it got a footholder in the early days of unix machines and it became like the essentially the way you talked to the computer in in a reasonable way so maybe that was it now c++ on the other hand i don't know uh, why it's been so successful everyone complains about it but biana is on record of saying there are two types of programming languages ones people complain about and the ones people don't use mm-hmm. and i think yeah. you know that's a fairly good and yes. reasonable thing to say yes. so yes um, well we were talking about know, this the other day i think is maybe a kind of an interview question when you're talking to somebody that says that they're an expert in one language or another and it's like oh okay well give me the top five things you hate about it right because yeah. if you don't if you can't list that then you haven't been using it for long enough to really call yourself an expert wow that's a good question uh, well, it's a it's a question. I don't know what I would say about that. I mean, if you if I mean if you ask me what are the five things I hate about C plus plus, I'd be like only five, and it would I wouldn't have enough time to 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 winnow it down. But yeah, yeah, no, that's an interesting one. So yeah, in terms of longevity, I don't know. I mean, uh, w- one language I'm just thinking out loud here, which is while I was thinking of like you know languages that have been successful and have uh, still doing well now, Java. We haven't spoken about that at all, mm, yeah. and that's a very interesting one. That sort of perceived to be very enterprisey certainly it was its uh, sort of first forte although my understanding is it was originally written so that like small-ish embedded devices could, oh yeah absolutely could, could like you know toaster you know java on your toaster and then you didn't have to retarget it for some other and you know um, one of the, one of my first side projects out of school was building uh j2me java 2 mobile edition apps I'm for a well nokia aware. stick phone Wow, uh, and th- and that was that was a fun little project right there. Did you ever do so anything I, like that with, with I J2ME? Did. Oh my golly, J two M E. Yeah, I the the original OG YouTube app. Oh at wow, Google was J two M E for some of the devices that only supported it, and that was <laughs> you can imagine the the perfect confluence of not really Java. Yeah, yeah. Also, yes. not really powerful CPU, and right. certainly not very. Um, standardized mjpeg decoding mm-hmm. hardware mm-hmm. and you know like that's a holy trinity of, of pain and suffering and so yeah you'd be like i've got it to work except that the red is green and the green is blue <laughs> and i can't change that because it's just the one and only thing i can do so you know oh man maybe we should just transpose all of the all of the videos on youtube and switch red and green around yeah um, and somehow not. that turned into uh enterprise server lit something 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 Right. Then, I mean, we yeah, we we all like everyone's got their favorite way of taking the Mickey out of a language, but right. Java's one is that you put get factory setter yeah, interface uh-huh. something something or no, yeah, which is not strictly fair, and especially you no, know, like, I, I like to point out to a lot of people, especially from like say the C plus plus community mm-hmm. who like to hate on that kind of thing or like hate is too strong, but like take the Mickey out of, mm-hmm. is that unlike our compilers uh, in C plus plus world, although Java is compiled, it is also JIT compiled as a second mm-hmm. time so like we know that it works we got bytecode and then we're like hey you know all those layers of software in direction you know and the factory getter and all that kind of stuff hey we, we compiled it out dynamically at runtime we were able to determine that none of these things mattered and it's just like get 12 yeah and that, right. c++ can't do that yet so we shouldn't yeah. be you know too yeah. too writing off of yeah of the jvm is one of the most amazing pieces of technology ever it just i and you know i've used i use java a lot i used a lot of closure a lot of use a lot of other of jvm languages i've forgotten that closure actually backed onto java as a right as a right all yeah. and underneath the covers it's all the same thing and the cool part about that is that you know if you spent you know a good chunk of your career uh, understanding how the java 
garbage collector works, that translates mm-hmm. pretty well into pretty much any other J2ME language. Like, you know, you pull up, use the same set of tools. Not J2ME, hopefully. What did I say? J2ME. You said J2ME again. I'm like, oh, oh gosh, it's stuck no. in your head. Yeah, any, any <laughs> other JVM. 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 JVM language. <laughs> JVM. Uh, Let it go, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's post-traumatic stress disorder from the, right. <laughs> from the early days. Uh, no, yeah, it tra- you know, use the same set of tools, you're, the same, you know, sort of foundational principles of, like, what kind of problems you run into and how you troubleshoot them and what you're looking for are there. Obviously, the ways that you deal with them might vary from language to language, but um, but it's kind but of it a cool a, ecosystem to live in, really. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of fungible knowledge, which is mm-hmm. a good thing to have. Right? Yeah. Plus, being able um, to reuse the libraries across them all is an amazing thing, right? Like, Of you, course. You know, yeah, some, the interoperability story is awesome. Right, there. right, right. It's like, oh, only if we had an amazing text processing library. Oh, you have a Lucene. It's been here for 15 years. You can use it in any of these languages. It's great. Yeah. So whatever it is, it's kind of cool. And, of course, it also spawned um, the, the Android uh, apps mm-hmm. are all Java through some crazy transcody something something dalvik something something lawsuit i don't really understand how that ended <laughs> right. up but you know that was right. the thing at the time so obviously that was seen as being like the best a good solution for yeah. for it and so it's done really well and c sharp while we're here talking about languages that broadly fit i see so much for any kind of plan that we had about this <laughs> as much as we ever have plans for these chats but we're meandering all over the place and hopefully uh, our listeners well, just are, like uh, programming languages do right <laughs> well that's true but c sharp i really enjoyed working in c sharp in fact um I, I rediscovered uh, uh, some C sharp code that I'd written a long, long time ago for a, for a game for for Xbox. What was it called? There was some kind of like community driven Xbox thing you could make mm. games for your Xbox way back when. It was an experiment that Microsoft canned fairly soon after, unfortunately. But but that was that was pretty great. It wasn't perfect. Um, something something garbage collector couldn't do anything with it. But that's that's more to do with the runtime than it was the language. I really liked the language, and one thing that it had over Java, which I think has been rectified now, although. I'm sure someone will tell us if it's not, not the case, but is it like allowed you to have actual value types, mm. like structure types that are values? Like, hey, this is an X and a Y, and I want you to pass it around as a copy of the X and the Y, which are just four bytes each, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to everything's an object where Java Java will hand you, like, yeah, sure, you want a new one of those? Here's a new one of those. You're like, no, 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 don't put it on the heap and give me a pointer to it. I don't want reference-like semantics. That's actually right, right. not performant, and also it doesn't have the semantics that I want. And so maybe there's another axis of our of our yeah. world is you know value types or value or the ability to have value types or reference. I mean, types. all these things are just kind of like language features. Like as much as we think of typing as this, this like really definitional thing, it's kind of just like a language feature. Now it is a pretty significant one, but yeah. um, at the end of the day, you know, any of these any of these things just comes down to the way the languages are designed. I may have mentioned this before, but I do have this theory that a lot of problems that get held up as really important problems actually just come from language design. Because when you think about like, oh, what should we put in the standard library? It's like, well, I have these problems as the designer of the language, so maybe other people do. I'll put them in there too. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. And like, you know, sometimes those are problems that other people have, but a lot of of times I feel like things kind of sneak into the language itself or sneak into the standard library are the things that are much more narrow in scope than the people who create them think they are. I mean, to some extent, sometimes the syntax of, you know, if we're going to get to the sort of like the nuts and bolts of languages, like the actual things you type mm-hmm. can force you to in one way or another. So, mm-hmm. you know, for the longest time in JavaScript, you could write anonymous functions 
and then you could pass them as callbacks and everything and whatever. And it was a pain because you write function, mm-hmm. open paren, close paren, mm-hmm. and then you know the lambda syntax came along, and it's exactly the same thing. But now I don't think twice about writing a little lambda that lives inside something and we pass yep. it in. Yep. You know, and the, the the things that are easy to do. I mean, we all know how lazy programmers are, which is a good thing, right? right. I, if we yes. haven't already said One of that, the three uh, virtues know, from Larry Well, right? Yeah, right. There you go. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, laziness, laziness, or too hubris, and I don't remember memory, uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, um, the yeah the syntax. If something's easy to type. And it's everywhere. Then you mm-hmm. will use it more. I mean, it goes without saying, really. Yeah. In C plus plus, similarly, for the longest time, you could define little static functions and then pass them into other functions as like the address of the other function over there. But the when they came up with the lambda syntax for that, that was you know another eye opener. Suddenly, you're like, hey, I want to make a callback. Oh, I can just give it a callback and make it in line, and suddenly that opens the door. And now you're thinking this design doesn't suck now because it's easy to do. I'm handing people mm-hmm. things that don't feel like it's difficult now. Because it's C plus plus, there's a hundred reasons why <laughs> it's really difficult to do that well. But mm-hmm. um, I wonder what else falls into that category. Um, I know that um, again from ADSP that I was listening to APL, which is like a very old programming language, mm-hmm. um, has uh, uses symbols exclusively for all of the things, and like you know, there's thousands of different ways you can have infix and outfix uh, operators and stuff, and that means that you can have a very rich, if terse language that sort of combines things together in a way that like i don't think i would necessarily like but maybe maybe that i'm missing something here i mean there yeah. was a, 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 a things like you know having the the pictograms that mean different things are actually um d- help you understand what the algorithm does better than maybe the the name does it's like oh, a wow. pictorial representative of like rotation or yeah um you know extraction you know so like um you know, in pandas, you do what is the thing that you call you you um, stacking un- and unstacking, uh-huh, and they're like uh-huh. the, these little things that mean that. And I'm like, oh, I, I think I could see that. Uh-huh. So that's another thing. And again, without wishing to completely sideline us, but that, that's what this podcast is. Like everyone's <laughs> podcast is, 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 is sorry. Um, in in human language, there's a theory called the Sapir Whorf hypothesis. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I think I have heard of this. Where, right? Yeah. Yeah, do you want yeah, you do what yeah, you uh my my memory of this is that your um the way that you think, the way that you think about the world is limited by your language, right? So if you right, don't have right. words in the language that you speak, then you have a much more difficult time thinking about concepts that don't fit that language. Right, right. I think to an extent that my understanding and again I you know we're armchair folks just discussing things mm-hmm. we remember from reading in books sometime. But the certainly the first language that you learn, like your mother tongue, mm-hmm. fundamentally changes the way that you think about the world is what that mm, okay. hypothesis was, which is a very Got difficult it. hypothesis to test. Um, right. And um, because <laughs> yes. you're like, oh, um, but you know, there are languages. Um, so some of the sort of theories behind the, the languages that are languages for which there are essentially tenses on words that, 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 that describe whether or not you know this as fact whether you heard it from someone or it is generally known. Mm. So if you imagine every time I talk to you, there's a different ending on the word. If I absolutely, it happened to me and I'm telling you it's truth or a, a friend of mine told me mm-hmm. or they say, you know, the, yeah, the they, yeah, yeah. you know. Right. And it is known. <laughs> I, you can't help but feel that that would fundamentally change the way 
you process information yeah. if you are essentially in your own head having to tag all information as being from that one of these three categories. That super useful, actually. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, especially in today's misinformation soup that we live in. I would, but, I would love to have that. So it seems plausible, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly the yeah. hypothesis seems plausible. Um, and I wonder if the same is true or a, a sort of more generalized version of it is true about programming languages too, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, to an, the extent that we just said, hey, learn a new programming language, it expands your mind. Maybe you'll think of new concepts mm-hmm. that you can apply back into it. Obviously, that's us trying to take our intuitive understanding that that's true and reversing it and go, well, how can I make my – how can I become better as a programmer? I know. I'll take advantage of this and right. I'll learn another language and may I'll, I'll expand my mind right. further. But I wonder if the actual root thing is also true, you know, like the fact that the first thing you learn shapes the way you think about computers because – while it's not the exact first thing I learned, the very second thing I learned very shortly after the first thing was 6502 or Z80 assembly. Yeah. And now yeah. I think of everything through the lens of an 8-bit computer, and I yeah. can't help but feel that that still happens to me at some level. Yeah. No, that probably and so is. I, it seems like that. you know, And obviously the folks who are, are coming in um, now who haven't been exposed to that kind of stuff are coming in at a different level. Maybe they, their first language was Java, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people yeah. that were graduating certainly 10 years ago when I was actively involved in recruitment more were they were java they were like their, their, their universities were only teaching java and that taught them to think about the world a certain way that's not uh-huh. bad or otherwise it's just different and uh-huh. um yeah I, I wonder what i want people learn these days um whether it's still java or whether you know and i know that you know some some universities do target c plus plus so yeah, I know that there we, are still uh, some specifically targeted those but i wonder what yeah. else there is is rust being taught anywhere are any of these languages being taught well, which so is the I, other thing, right? <laughs> I have spent my last week doing nothing but reading resumes because it's August and it's, you know, campus oh, recruiting time. Of course. Uh, and most of the things that I see are Java or C++. There's some Python in Interesting. there. Um, and what I have seen, I think, a lot is is it's not one language for the entire degree. Right. right. You'll have classes that are taught in particular. And that was true when I was in school too, right? Like, you know, um, the selection of languages was a little smaller, but like, you know, most of my core programming classes were in C++, but, you know, we had, um, we had classes that were in COBOL. We had classes that were in, um, uh, there was at least one class that was still in Pascal, even though they had switched over the core program to, to C++. But COBOL. Yeah, wow. the databases class was in was in. COBOL. Tell me how old you are without telling me how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. But yeah, I think that's definitely a thing. And you know, there's also there's also kind of an interesting intersection of these two points, which is that almost all, maybe all, I actually don't know, um, programming languages. The keywords are in English, and so if yeah. you're a native English speaker, you have a particular meaning in your head for those words. Mm-hmm. That you know, maybe is close to what their their intention is in the language itself. But if you're not a native speaker, then this is just a word, right? Like you, you yeah. have your own concept of that that's maybe separate from the language, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, definitely the case that with most most languages, if not all languages that I'm, well, certainly all languages I'm aware of, but yeah, I don't know, you know like, that aren't. most programming languages that I've heard of, and, and again, I've heard folks discuss about various programming languages with this question have said no they all end up being mostly anglo-centric of some description mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. which is an interesting and that that was actually where the, then the apl being all symbol based was an interesting counterpoint yeah. in yeah so 
yeah, maybe maybe the the names. I mean, naming is that we could do a whole other episode on naming. Oh yeah, we could probably do a whole podcast on naming because naming is really difficult. Yeah, yeah, really, really difficult. And but getting it right is so satisfying, right? <laughs> That's like when you when you find that word, and you're like, yeah, this is this is what I mean. So let me give you an example. So I'm going to tangent on the tangent on the tangent. So we're probably back where we started. <laughs> well, one more one more tangent, and we're back where we started. I think. Yeah. Um, we we were trying to deal with a piece of code that had sort of two timelines. There was the wall clock time of the computer itself, and then there was the time that, that essentially simulation time. Mm-hmm. And we were very excited when we found the word juncture to, and we gave it the meaning. Yeah, of, yeah. That is the simulation time, right? At this juncture, we were doing this thing, right? It's All a right. very posh sort of oh, barking array in the background. It's a very um. Uh, yeah, sort of posh way of saying time, but we it, so we gave it new meaning. So I guess that's also not not a great thing, but it, it it was something we all understood was like if you see a juncture time, uh-huh. then that is not a wall clock time. That is a time that you think that sometimes they coincide, right? But right, not often right, not. Right. Yeah, and it, it was and yeah, it was an interesting thing. And and then to go back to typing, you know, making your juncture type essentially it's still a sixty four bit number. That's how many nanoseconds since nineteen seventy or whatever. But having it a very different static type from the wall clock time type uh-huh. means that you can never mix them up yeah and that's a super yep. important thing in i don't know trading systems just picking a, yeah. a random example out of my my uh posterior mm-hmm. so so um yeah i know we didn't ask about why one might want one or the other but that was that there we are so <laughs> yeah no um, I, I and it's it's funny how different different languages will inform the way that you pick names uh in different ways and like you know a lot of times it's the community behind the languages that is doing that. Obviously, as I already talked about earlier, mm-hmm. the the pattern in Java for a very long time has generally been to be extremely verbose and throw all of the whole like soup of nouns into the names of your classes and functions. Yep. Um, and I think that was maybe a reaction to some of the earlier stuff where you would have variable names like C and R and C underscore R. Uh, right, because it goes faster yeah. if you use shorter names because right. the computer doesn't have to look up as many uh-huh. characters, that's obviously. Right. The compiler goes so much faster when you when you do it that way. Yeah, that's right. why you should use tabs and not spaces as well to indent <laughs> because it's fewer fewer bytes to go through. Fewer bytes to get through the, the parser, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, it's it's all this, all this. It's amazing all of the different effects that all these things have. I'm probably sure that most of them were not intentional, but they... Absolutely, yeah. They, yeah, I mean, well, some, some, of some things were, have yeah. sat down intentionally and yeah. said, no, this is how we're going to do things. You know, yeah. like uh, all the getters and setters in, in Java are almost like forced to be that uh-huh. because of sort of like things like Java Java beans, beans. Could, Java beans, yep. That, that sort of said that. And, you know, that's that's a, um, that's a powerful thing for to say, okay, that's how we're just going to set and retrieve things. And now... Yeah tooling can come in and use that to its advantage so there's definitely something to be said for that but and it yeah do do you need to put get in the front of things i don't think you necessarily do maybe maybe setting oh, sorry my dog is making all the noise again in the background we've we've done so well recently with noise <laughs> from dog um but he's discovered plastic uh, his favorite toy in the world is a plastic bucket you know such as a child would use to make oh, sand okay. castles with okay and he has chewed that to death and he, and now he's knocking it around in the background. So apologies for the background noise. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess where does that leave us? Um, what 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 choices does one make? So I personally, I do like 
the, usually the performance of a language is, is important to me unless yeah. it's a script thing like, like I discussed and and to be honest actually if you're going to write something in JavaScript it's amazing how fast things can go in JavaScript oh, yeah. these days that's crazy. so that's an impressive impressive achievement there and you've got TypeScript which kind of can give you a certain amount of types on top of JavaScript so you can kind of recover some of the other things that I like which is as much as possible make it so that if I've got bad code that won't work the compiler tells me before I have to run my tests even mm-hmm. so that's that's my own choice there and and uh, obviously, there is there's a huge continuum between uh, fully dynamic and test all the things, and fully static check all the things, and you know you don't need to write tests because your co- code, if it compiles, it works. You know that's a nice property right. to have. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely fall very much on a spectrum when it comes to those kinds of things. The the main thing for me is just making sure that it's easy get to get to a point where I'm confident that my code works. And yeah. I'm perfectly happy to write fast focus unit tests to get there. I, I'm happy to let the mm-hmm. type system do it if it'll do it. The thing that drives me nuts is when the type system tells me that I need to do a thing that doesn't actually give me any confidence and I have to write the tests anyway, and then the tests are hard because the type system gets in the way. Got it. Um, which, are you referring to Python, for example, in this instance, or not? <laughs> I'm not or referring to I'm any particular language. I have felt that pain in many, many, many different languages. Got it. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I know recently we've been... Some of the stuff that we we you, we've seen at work is Python, mm-hmm. and you know, there's people like me who are like, I really, really, really wish Python was statically typed. So I'm going to put every single type hint known to mankind everywhere and try and try and pretend like that's actually doing anything. <laughs> For those who don't know Python very well, it is literally a hint. It's possible it, to like, yeah, like read comment, the hints off, but nothing. Yeah, it's a comment, but yeah. it's a you know, it's a in principle, it's a comment that can be checked by a checker. Mm-hmm. But for various reasons, we're not checking as much as we ought to be checking, so we're not getting the benefit of it being all nicely typed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've kind of got the worst of all worlds. You've got IDEs that are giving you red squigglies because you type hinted it, <laughs> and someone else is passing in something which is basically the same, but not the actual same type, and mm-hmm. you know, it kind of. You squint and it comes out in the wash. It's like, yeah, it's fine. It's got a getter and a setter. That's all I needed. Right. right, But it's not, it doesn't derive from get settable or whatever you've decided your type is called. And you're like, nah. Which actually comes back to Go and my grief. Sorry, we we should definitely stop soon because I'm just going all over the place (laughs) here. But the thing I found interesting about Go is that it has structural typing rather than nominative typing. I think I'm getting that the right way around. So you can say, um, my class needs to be passed something which has. Uh, this interface and the interface is you know set foo and get foo those are my two mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. that that interface has and at no point do you need to in your um, thing that implements that say that that's what you're doing as long as you have those two functions get foo and set foo then you you honor the contract of uh foo settable interesting and that's interesting if you have to me that's really interesting because it allows you to post hoc layer on interfaces where none existed before like i can take someone else's code and sort of again open close principles say hey look you've got this thing i now can retrospectively f- f- uh, put an interface over you oh, as long as that interface has your method sorry as long as you implement the methods that are in your interface and now i can pass you around as this interface to other people no. without having to shim anything myself right because you you implicitly are one of these so you don't you're not declaring something it's just looking at the usage of it from within, like the function, and saying, like, "Oh, this variable must have these what you, methods." What it's on doing it is, when you pass an object as, um, like, a concrete type as an interface, mm-hmm. it just looks at the methods that you have in your in your um, object in your concrete class and mm-hmm. compares them to the interface. And if they match, it's like, 
Oh, hey, I get cool. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no there's no inheritance mixed up in that at all. Exactly right. right. Yes, yeah, and there's no it. implements that you have to write, which got is to it. say, means that you can layer them on afterwards, which is cool. But yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it because I think it should be very intentional if you are choosing. Yeah. Like I'm an implementer of a class, and I'm choosing to be loggable, yeah. right? Because I have a log method, and my log method does a logging, right? Does yeah. does right? And now, if if someone comes along and write, and this is extremely, I'm just being silly to prove a point what if you now have math logable which means you know like hey this is the logarithm the natural logarithm yeah, right. of a number uh-huh. you're like, hey i can pass in my logger into my freaking log you know my math function because it implements log and you're like no, no. i mean obviously yeah. that's just the name and obviously the yeah, parameters yeah, would be yeah. different whatever. but like there's a very big difference between that and I had a much better example at one stage where you know like the intention of something is very different depending on what the interface is as opposed to the name of the methods the methods are ambiguous without the context of mm-hmm. well is this you know what, what is this doing here you know is this a yeah i, 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 I yeah if i had it at the top of my tongue now i would tell it and now i just sit, sound silly but never mind uh, what has that ever stopped us never, <laughs> thankfully never, never once before never have we stopped never once before well, this is obviously a gigantic topic, mm-hmm. and I know we've got some cursory notes, and we've barely scratched any of these things. And um, but we could definitely go over some other things another time. I'd be interested in knowing what our listener yeah, uh, right. thinks of various languages and what what makes uh, what goes into the choices uh, folks use for both their home projects, such if they have them, or yeah. you know, like little throwaway projects versus like big. This is going to be supported for two or three years in, in a company kind of context. And yeah. Whether there's something we're missing because. Um, I'd love to hear. So, you know, tweet at us. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this has been a good talk. I think this is a good place to stop. I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get to talk about the most popular programming, the most popular language that's used in programming, though. Oh. Profanity. Oh, profanity. <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, I was close there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. it's always fun to get grep and find out how many times <laughs> someone has checked something in. <laughs> yeah, right. Well... Uh, Until next time, my friend. Until next time. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbold. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com. <laughs>